But let's take a moment to pray together. To you, Father, we come again in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that name above every name, that name at which every knee will bow in heaven and earth and beneath the earth. And Father, we do bow before that name and that person today, God of gods, Lord of lords, our Savior, our King. And we ask, Lord, that we will grow in our understanding of you through a study of your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be the one to empower our understanding and that we will hear the word, that we will apply the word, that we will be transmitters of the word to those around us in action as well as speech. God, we ask for your blessing throughout this Sunday school this morning, that in every class your presence will be sensed and that lives will be changed. In the name of Christ, amen. It's very interesting as we study the life of Moses, God's chosen deliverer of this particular hour, that uh, this man had a very inauspicious beginning, if you will remember. Born of slaves. Hmm. It's not a real (laughs) great start in life. Reminds us of Christ, who was born to an unknown couple in a a virtually unknown village. Moses was under the proclamation of execution at the time of his birth. It was only because of a rather outrageous plan and his willingness of his mother to execute that plan and then the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter, which certainly was implanted in her heart by God, that this man even survived. We noted that he probably was in his mother's care for three years plus or minus a little, during the time that he was being nursed before he was finally ultimately weaned. And uh, in that three-year time, he was certainly given whatever teaching they could give to, uh, obviously, a three-year-old. Moses may have been somewhat precocious, we don't know, but it sure seems to indicate as we go through our study here that he picked up a whole lot more than most three-year-olds pick up by the time he was transferred into the palace under the guidance of Pharaoh's daughter. He was given during the next 37 years of his life the finest education that was available in those days. It was like rolling Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Stanford all together in one, I suppose you could say, as far as being trained in the best that was available in every area of life. Music probably, art some way, Uh, certainly politics and history and language, all these different areas, he was subject to this teaching. And I noted uh, that he probably was taught by the priests because the priesthood formed the intelligentsia in virtually all of the ancient cultures and carried out most of the schooling. And so in the process, he was made well aware of the religion of Egypt, of the polytheistic uh, worship of that land, of the multitude of gods and goddesses, and certainly the overarching power of the sun god, whatever his name might be at the time, whether it was Ray or Amun or Amun-Re, this was all, he was exposed to all of this. And yet, in the midst of it all, somehow, that initial three years held his heart 
by the power of God. There's no indication that after he entered Pharaoh's palace, he was ever subjected again or given the opportunity to learn about his Hebrew past or his Hebrew God. As we think about his education, the scripture does not tell us what Moses did during those 40 years of, of the first 40 years of his life, other than the, the very sketchy thing I've mentioned so far. Josephus tells us that he was actually considered to be an heir to the Egyptian throne. And Josephus further tells us that he commanded Egyptian armies in battles against the enemies of Egypt. Josephus, of course, is not inspired scripture. He is a man who lived 1,500 years after Moses and much closer to the time than we are. But uh, whether the tradition that he was recording was accurate or not, Scripture does not either support or deny. God would not allow him to forget his heritage. In the midst of it all, exposed to the grandeur and the wonder and the wealth and the power of his position, in the midst of it all, in the back of his mind, or in the midst of his heart, wherever it was, there was that voice, still small voice of God speaking to this man, Moses. Two weeks ago, we read this verse from Acts 7. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. I'd like, if we could to uh, turn to the second chapter of Exodus. Begin reading at verse 11. Verse 11 of Exodus 2. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? The Hebrew responded, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. It's obvious from this passage that Moses had sympathy for his people. He knew who his people were. He knew that this was his heritage, and he had developed a deep sympathy for them. You notice in verse 11 it says he refers to them as his brethren, as his brethren. And then in the latter part of the verse it says, he looked upon their hard labor. His brethren, their hard labor, indicating that in his heart there was an affinity for them. And there was a sense of, of anguish over what they had been subjected to. To, to know that this really was his heritage, and yet he stood aloof, apart, because of his background. And this was about to change. It changed momentarily. It, it changed in a, in, in a flash, if you will. He saw an Egyptian taskmaster doing his job, what, uh, the same job that thousands of Egyptian taskmasters were doing, using the whip to drive the Hebrews on 
to make them work harder to do their task. And, and rage just overwhelmed him in this moment. And, and it says he looked this way and that to make sure no Egyptians were around. And then he slew the Egyptian taskmaster. He was a royal prince. Obviously, he was alone. He was out visiting his brethren without an escort. What, did he roll up in a chariot? We don't know. But he was enraged. As a royal prince, he was probably armed, maybe with a dagger, maybe with a sword. Often chariots were equipped with a little stand in which spears or lances were kept. We don't know whether he used a weapon or just his bare hands. Whatever he used, he murdered the Egyptian official. Was he strong enough to do it barehanded? Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. As we read further down in this chapter, we discover he drives off quite a few people, apparently barehanded. May have had a weapon, it doesn't say. But uh, he was obviously a very strong, physically strong person. Moses buried the corpse in the sand. He didn't have to find a shovel or a pick to dig in the ground. Egypt has lots of sand around. And uh, sand's a great pl a, a place to bury people because you just dig down a little bit, throw them in, cover it up. As long as the wind doesn't blow too strong anytime soon, the body stays uh, there. And actually, it uh, desiccates and, and remains relatively preserved. Doesn't even usually create an odor to give away its presence because of the extreme dry climate, which retards bacterial activity. He had made sure that no Egyptian had seen what he had done. The only person who witnessed what he had done was the Hebrew whom he was saving from the lash. He didn't expect that this Hebrew would broadcast his deed. He thought, well, certainly the guy would be thankful and shut up and not say anything, you know, for what he had done. Moses also knew that if the Hebrews fought amongst themselves, they could never be united for resistance against the Egyptians, for escape from the land or overthrow of their oppressors. And that's certainly the reason that he did what he did and said what he said in verse 14. As you read that verse where he says he had, he had talked to the two Hebrews who were fighting amongst themselves, and uh, he asked them in verse 13, why are you striking your companion? And the man responded, who made you a prince or a judge over this? Strange response, isn't it? Very strange response, because he is a prince in Egypt, a royal prince. He was prince over them. But of course, the implication was, who made you a specific savior for, for us, is certainly what the man is implying here, because as a royal prince in Egypt, of course he was their prince uh, over them, even over the taskmasters. But who made you our specific savior? Now, why did this man respond this way? Well, he may have responded this way because he didn't understand Moses' motivation. He probably did not know Moses was a Hebrew, or he simply didn't trust him thought it was a trick. Kind of like in World War II, you know, where Gestapo was going around trying to ferret out uh, escapees, Jews, whoever they might be, and, and they'll pretend to be your friend and, and try to uh, solicit uh, 
positive response and they are not trustworthy. So they may have thought concerning him. This is made more evident even, the response that uh, of mistrust when we discover in verse 15 that the story got to Pharaoh. How could the story get to Pharaoh? I mean, the only person who saw him kill the taskmaster was a Hebrew slave. So the only one who knew who killed that taskmaster was a Hebrew. And if Moses buried him well enough, nobody even knew he was dead. They knew it may have known he was missing, but didn't know he was dead. So how in the world did Pharaoh come to know that Moses had slain one of his taskmasters? A Hebrew had to tell an Egyptian. Obviously, somebody had to squeal on Moses. Now, did they squeal on Moses willingly? Or was the body found and then the kind of an inquisition and uh, torture was used and somebody was forced to, uh, to, to give Moses away? Well, the scripture's silent about that. We, we don't know. But the implication seems to be that uh, the word was rampant amongst the Hebrews and that probably one of them just let it be known or maybe by accident to one of the Egyptian officials. I, I don't think that Pharaoh would turn on Moses just like that. I think that Pharaoh already had become suspicious about Moses. Why? Because Moses was down visiting the Hebrews, apparently time after time. And probably he had given away by his speech a certain sympathy for them. Remembering Pharaoh knew his origin. Pharaoh knew that Moses was a Hebrew. In fact, Pharaoh may not have been very enthusiastic in the first place about his daughter, if this is the same Pharaoh. We, we don't, you know, <laughs> the chronology is not given here. Assuming this is the same Pharaoh, he may not have been very positive about his daughter adopting this Hebrew. Why do why you want to do this? <laughs> there are a lot of Egyptian babies. Why do you want to adopt this Hebrew baby? And so there may have been a latent mistrust from the beginning in Pharaoh's mind. And then when this pops up, everything is confirmed. And his suspicion becomes reality, and he seeks to destroy Moses. Although Moses is a high-ranking prince, whether or not, as Josephus says, he was heir to the throne, he was a high-ranking royal prince. And so the question is, how much is Pharaoh's hatred? Well, it's great enough to even destroy a royal prince. After all, the destruction of a taskmaster was a serious offense because this was destroying one of the individuals who was part of the, of the pyramid of power that sat down upon the Hebrews and kept them in order. And if he was allowed to get away with this, this would break down morale amongst the Egyptians and it would encourage the Hebrews, possibly even, to rebellion. And so, severe punishment had to be exacted for this deed. Now, another question is, how did Moses find out? It says when, verse 15, when Moses heard of this matter, no, <laughs> when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh. How did he know to flee? 
How did he know that Pharaoh was out to get him? Did Pharaoh start tacking up wanted posters on the nearest pyramid? Probably not. He probably ordered his KGB or his Gestapo or whatever to, to get Moses and bring him in. So how did Moses hear about the fact that he was a wanted man? Well, Scripture is silent about that too. But we have to remember, Moses had a, um, a friend in the royal palace, <laughs> his adopted mother, Pharaoh's daughter. So she probably sent word to her son that Pharaoh was out to get him. And so Moses fled. Moses could have fled in many directions. North wouldn't have helped him much into the Mediterranean. He, uh, West wouldn't have been too good either because he'd have had to hike out across the Sahara Desert. South would have been too far because Egypt, the Egyptian power strung out all the way down into modern-day Sudan. The only direction to which he could flee with any hope of, of evading arrest quickly was east. And that's the direction he fled. He fled east into the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. Stephen, in the book of Acts, gave his famous sermon before the Sanhedrin. And in that sermon, he summarizes these events. If we look at the seventh chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 24. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, your brethren, why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. That was quick. <laughs> Scripture tends to go right to the point and uh, leave a lot of details out along the way. Stephen implies in his statement here that Moses understood himself to be a deliverer. As we read there in verse 25, and he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, sort of as would become understood by Esther later on in time, as her uncle said to her, God knows but what you have been put in this position for such a time as this to save the people of Israel. And Moses apparently came to understand that. At least that's the impl implication that Stephen makes here. That he was given this position of power in Egypt for such a time as to finally deliver God's people. What did Moses know about God's word to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? 
Certainly that's what Amram and Jochebed tried to teach their son even while he was in the process of being weaned. Maybe only at three or possibly four years of age. Very, very young to learn much. But God may have given him the ability to comprehend at least as much as a child that age could comprehend and then reinforced it later in his mind. Maybe he was able to get a hold of some Hebrews and privately interview them at some point. We don't know. Maybe he had somehow had further contact with his mother and his father at a later point. None of, none of that is spoken here or explained to us here in Scripture. But somehow he come, came to understand the concept of deliverance and, and that his people needed to be delivered from this oppression in Egypt. And certainly that's what God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob that one day they would be delivered after suffering in the land for 400 years. The writer of the Hebrews takes us behind the obvious and gives insight into the spiritual realm. At the time, I don't think Moses viewed the events as the writer of Hebrews explains them, but he may have later on. If we look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 26, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Did all of that enter Moses' mind as he struck down the Egyptian there, uh, taskmaster? I think not. Did those things become revealed to Moses as time passed, as he met God on Mount Sinai, as he became the, uh, God's uh, uh, writer in writing down the law and, and writing the first five books of Scripture? In the process, did he come to understand the concept of Messiah? Did he understand a certain measure of revelation? Well, some commentators think that that's what it says here. That this passage indicates that Moses had some kind of a messianic vision and that he understood that he would su be a suffering servant, much as Isaiah would later describe of the Messiah. Is that, that certainly is possible. But others, in looking at this passage, feel that it refers to Moses as a type of Christ. Not that Moses had a vision of Christ himself, or maybe even of the Messiah, as the Hebrews came to expect and still expect today. But that as the Savior of the day, as the man of the hour, if we might put it that way, he suffered the reproach that generally belongs to the anointed envoy of God. It's funny, isn't it? That the one who is chosen by God to be God's man or woman of the hour is usually a person who is, has been or will be subjected to a great deal of persecution and suffering in this life. It's pretty hard if you think back through all of the great men and women of Scripture to think of anyone who just had a great day and, and was a great man or woman of power and never knew suffering and never knew reproach, 
in his or her life as God's servant. It's just not the way it works. Because Moses was a type of Christ. So Moses suffered reproach as God's anointed Savior, quote, Savior, as a prefiguring of the greater reproach that Christ himself would be subjected to 1,500 years later. To me, that sounds probably like the best understanding of this Hebrews passage. But whatever is the case, certainly Moses is being portrayed as a type of Christ here and suffering the reproach that would go along with that comparison. It's interesting to, to think about this. Do, do you or I suppose that Moses could have just simply thrown everything away at the drop of a hat? That he could have just all of a sudden in just a fit of rage gone out and slain the taskmaster knowing that in the process of this one little act that he was giving up everything that had been built into him and, and any future he might have in Egypt. I, I think there probably was considerable thought already had gone into this. I think he had already begun to count the cost. If I'm going to be God's anointed one, to whatever extent he understood that. I guess this is where the role of faith becomes even, even more pronounced in some of the ancients than it may be for us today. Because they had so much less light than we have. And yet they obeyed God. Moses staked all that the position of a royal prince had to offer Pleasure. Can you imagine any pleasure that would have been denied to a royal prince in Egypt? I think not. Power. Heir to the throne, or if not heir to the throne, certainly one of the most powerful men in the realm. Wealth. The wealth of the kingdom. All those things that Satan offered Jesus as he took him up to the pinnacle, to the high mountain. All of this I will give to you, <laughs> as Satan says to the Lord of all creation. But Moses wasn't the Lord of all creation. And yet he was willing to give up this pleasure, this power, and this wealth on a sudden act of God-inspired compassion, it seems. Certainly the compassion for the Hebrew being lashed was God-inspired. The act of murder certainly was not. It was his own human reaction. A lashing out without seeking God's direction, I think. But it's interesting that God's plan was not stymied by this. You know, sometimes we can muddy up the water and make it difficult for God to carry out what God would like to do in our lives, but God is sovereign, and God will ultimately accomplish what He chooses to accomplish. And we can choose to go along with the program or not, to our benefit or our detriment. God overrode Moses' compulsive act here. In fact, used it for, to further God's plan. He got him out of Egypt. God allowed Moses to be told upon. I mean, God could have kept it quiet so that nobody would have known. 
But God allowed the word to get to the Egyptians and to get to Pharaoh so Pharaoh would be after Moses and, and got Moses to hear of it so Moses would get out of Egypt because God had another training ground for Moses chasing sheep for 40 years in the desert. Kind of the opposite end of the spectrum of where he's been. You know, in the palace of power with everything the world had to offer, now he's going to go out and, and chase these dumb animals out in the desert. It's about as far as you can fall in those days. I suppose even today. So God used even Moses' failure to accomplish his will. The Hebrews 11 passage gives us to understand that God somehow had touched Moses' heart and that he was willing to identify with his people even if it meant giving up everything that this world had to offer. You know, if we really stop to think about that for a while, we, 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 we realize how much we have to learn from someone such as Moses. I, I don't know about you, but I find daily life a bit of a struggle. There's a constant war going on. The will of God versus the draw of the world. Because in our flesh, there is that natural tendency to lean towards the world. It's our spirit that keeps trying to pull us back through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so there's this tension that goes on all along. Moses gives us an example of what the value is in giving up what the world has to offer. To have done otherwise than to obey God at this point would have meant that the rest of his life would have been lived in sin. The person who refuses to do the will of God, God makes his will plain, the person refuses to do that will, whatever the rest of his life is like, it is lived under the shadow of sin. We've all heard of the so-called sin of omission. Well, that largely comes from James 4.17, where we read, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. The person who knows what's right, doesn't do it, lives in sin. So we can be Christians, saved by the blood of Christ, and yet be walking in disobedience because God has said, do this, and we don't do it. So Moses becomes a powerful example of one who gives up what the world would, be, would look upon as everything in order to do what God wanted him to do with as little understanding as he could have had about what that was. He couldn't have gone to the scripture and said, now, what does Paul tell me about the will of God, you know? Or even David. He didn't have any psalms to sit down and comfort him out there by the well in Midian. He only had the, the voice of the Spirit of God within him with what little information he had garnered through those first 40 years of his life, not being able to go to, quote, synagogue or anything else. There were no synagogues, of course, in those days, nor temple or tabernacle or anything else. There wasn't even any word of God in printed form. It was only what had been given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, transmitted orally down, possibly written down, but not as scripture per se, probably. 
talk about faith. It should be a great challenge to us because we sit here with the whole counsel of God in our hands. And sometimes we wonder, duh, well, what should I do next, you know? I was reading last night in Oswald Chambers and uh, in his, uh, one of his devotionals, and uh, he was saying that to the person who is walking with the Spirit of God, whatever we choose to do in light of the Spirit's indwelling and the Word of God in our hearts is the will of God. In other words, whatever, if, if we're walking with the Spirit, we're studying the Word, we have an attitude of obedience, and, and a decision has to be made, and we think, oh Lord, I want to make the right decision, guide us, you make the decision, it's the right decision. If it's not the right decision, God will put a check in your heart. According to Chambers, if such a check appears, woe be unto you if you override that check. Moses chose to be associated with the Hebrew God. This God was not even recognized in Egypt. The Egyptians didn't recognize Yahweh. They had all these other gods and goddesses around. You know, they worshipped this animal and that animal and the other animal and the moon and the stars and the, and the sun and, you know, the jackal. and all, They had this, this whole incredible theogony. And, of course, you can read it by going to the tombs, and there it's painted all over the walls. And you can see the process of a person's life and how one finds out whether he's going to good in the afterlife or bad in the afterlife. The Egyptians didn't acknowledge the God of Israel, yet somehow in his heart Moses had come to believe that Yahweh was the true God. That is testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit to take even a small amount of information and make it reality in the heart of a person. And then we sit here with this gob of information in our laps and coming at us over the radio and coming at us Sunday morning, Sunday night, whenever and wherever. And uh, sometimes we aren't motivated, it seems, to choose obedience. He staked everything on that belief. How could he do that except by the power of God? His knowledge of God was very sparse, and yet he believed. The reward of faith in this probably somewhat yet vague God, the reward of that faith was seen by Moses to be of greater value than all that Egypt had to offer. Whenever we walk into a place where other than the real God is worshipped, there's a sense of oppression. There's a sense of emptiness. There's a sense of hopelessness. If you can walk into a Buddhist temple, for example, not that I'm advocating that we do that, but if, he, if a person can do that and think, hey, this is a great place, you know, they're having a good time here, they're, they're worshiping God as they understand it, well, I, I think there's something really wrong inside our hearts. Because the Spirit of God testifies with us that this is false. There is only one name under heaven whereby we must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. And Moses was willing to give up all for the measure of faith that he had at that time. Certainly Jesus' words to his disciples as Jesus contemplated, contemplated the looming cross are fitting here. He said 
and we know it so well. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You think of lives like Napoleon, who tried to conquer the world. We don't know, of course, on his deathbed, did Napoleon really believe in the living God? There's no record that he did. In fact, there is a record that he made the statement that through love, Jesus has millions of willing followers, and yet I, through force, have few. What about Hitler? Did he gain the world? Momentarily, he gained a big hunk of it, and yet he forfeited his soul tragically. We're too nearsighted, it seems. Unfortunately, many people never get away from the instantaneous desire of gratification, which seems to be so typical of people in their early years of life. You know, the baby who wants to eat now, not later. And the teenager who wants the fulfillment now, not later. And, and seems to be willing to forfeit future for a, a momentary pleasure. And yet that, that tends to be the, the, the characteristic of human beings at any age almost. Especially when it comes to eternity. It's like we don't really believe that eternity is there or we don't really believe we're going to die. What will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Paul similarly lives this or lived it. He, Paul gave up power. Paul gave up position. Paul gave up probable wealth to be obedient to Christ. And he makes a point of it. I'd like to read from Philippians chapter 3. Again, a well-known statement made by Paul. And I, I think as we read Paul, there are times if we don't read Paul with the right attitude, we can think, whoa, this guy's a braggart. He was not at all. He was simply stating the truth. Although I myself, Philippians 3, 4, although all, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. That's quite a statement. I lived according to the law, he's saying. Even though he will later, in other passages, make it quite clear that no one can live perfectly according to the law. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Did Moses have all of that understanding? Probably not. His was certainly a little more vague. But the ultimate goal was the same. And as we read words such as these of Paul, we, I, I think we have a tendency, maybe I'm just thinking for myself, and maybe you don't think that way, but I, uh, sometimes we have a tendency to think, well, that's okay for Paul, because Paul was... 
But what Paul says here in verse 10, particularly, of Philippians 3, really applies to all of us as much as it applied to Paul. Our, our goal should be to know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. Those aren't pleasant words. We, we want to live a happy Christian life with all the worldly things that go along with it. Nice house, nice cars, good friends, good health, good weather, you know, all the other good things so that life here is good and life there is good and everything is just hunky-dory. But, but that's really not the way life is lived as you see it in the, uh, in, in the men and women of Scripture. There's a great deal of suffering goes along. And I know many of you have gone through a great deal of suffering. But that's part of life. And that suffering enables us to better understand who Christ is and why he came and what his goals were. Maybe you don't think of the matter as I do sometimes, but sometimes I think, God is almighty, the creator of all the greatest power in the universe. And yet he wants us to live in this life as if we have, you know, we're supposed to turn the other cheek, we're supposed to give away what we have, and... You know, it's kind of like we, we serve a God who's got nothing. It's because of, of what it takes for people to truly believe in the God of the Scripture. We have to be radical. People won't believe in anything that doesn't require a serious commitment. Erwin Lutzer, in one of his messages that he gave recently on Nazi Germany, was talking about at the same time, you know, the church in Germany and, and what went on there. And he was making some allusion to the church in China. And he talked about the church in China, which was under persecution too. And he said, when the church in China was swept under, over by communism, the church in China was divided. There were Protestants, there were Catholics, there were liberals, there were conservatives and everything. He says, as a result of the persecution, there are no divisions like that. There are no liberals anymore. Liberal theology is destroyed by persecution. Because who wants to die for something they don't really believe in? Who wants to die for a Christ who's just another good guy? The only people who are willing to die are those who believe Christ is Lord of all. And so persecution purifies the church. And maybe that's what's going to take to get the church in America to draw together and say, hey, we're one in, in the Lord, and I don't care whether you believe in baptism by immersion or baptism by pouring or speaking in tongues or not speaking in tongues. We're one in Christ. And if we have differences, so be it. But we are one in the Lord. And it seems like that's what it ultimately takes to get the church back on the mark. We need to be sure that we have the attitude that Paul had here in this passage and that we're not trying to hang on to the world we, because Scripture is pretty strong about the world. In uh, 1 John, which of course is one of the best books to study when it comes to the influence of the world uh, on a Christian life, one of the passages, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 we read these words. Probably you shouldn't love the world so much. <laughs> no, it doesn't say that. It says, do not love the world. 
period. Underline, that's it. Nor the things in the world. Now that doesn't mean you can't love a waterfall, you can't love flowers, or you can't love skiing, or you can't love things like that. It means the, God, the godless system of this world and all that it represents, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, all of those things which are built into the system of the world, we can't love that. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from God, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So the church needs to do all that it can to see to it that it doesn't walk in those ways. That the church doesn't invite the world in. Well, the only way to get the world in is to compromise with the world and do a little bit of what the world likes so the world will come. There's a good word for that. In Hebrew, it's called hogwash. <laughs> I think the more the church is unlike the world, the more people are going to be drawn who really want to be changed. The rest of them we don't need because all they do is water down the church. How in the world did it get to be that the church became so polluted? Well, because in the fourth century the law was passed requiring everybody in the whole Roman Empire to be a Christian. So suddenly you're a Christian because a law says so? I don't think so. So the church is full of all these pagans and some of these pagans work their way all the way up to the top of the church. They become bishops and archbishops and cardinals. And here they are, pagans, in their heart, and they're ruling the church. The world is in the church. Of course, God raised up people like Martin Luther to, to, to try to do something about that. Rather imperfectly, of course, but nevertheless giving direction. And we need to further that in our own lives personally and in our own church. Is, has the world crept into this church body in any way, shape, or form? Probably. We need to be on our guard. And we need to be praying people to pray the devil out, so to speak, and to choose to live obediently, exemplary, especially to our young people, because who else do they have to model Christianity but their parents and their grandparents and other adults in the church? We need to have the faith, faith that Moses had to give it all up. In terms of our heart attitude, that doesn't mean we have to junk our car and burn down our house and you know, go live under a freeway overpass. But our heart has to give it up so that our heart isn't after all these things. But our heart is after God. And if he gives us these other things, wonderful. Helps us to do the things we need to do. But they can't be our goal. They can't be our you know, I, I see people who spend all day puttering around with their car. Polish it here and tune it there and do this and do that. Put this other ornament on it. I mean, they're bowing down to their metal hunk there, you know. And that's, it's an instrument God gives us to, to get around. And uh, we can do the same thing with our house. We can do the same thing. I could, I could start stepping a lot of toes here. <laughs> <laughs> step on my own while I'm at it. <laughs> but anyway, it, it's, it's a hard attitude. And that's what God's after. Moses' heart was to be able to give, willing to give it up all, whatever that meant. And he did. 
He literally gave it all up. But our heart is to give it up as Moses did. But I don't think God's going to require us to literally give it all up in that sense. Unless, of course, persecution does come, as it has in many lands, when all has been lost, including life, on the part of many. Well, we have uh, the next passage, but we'll, we'll work on that one next week. Moses' flight into the wilderness and his encounter with seven ladies at the well in Midian. Little did he know that he was facing a divine appointment and was meeting his future bride all at the same time.